If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of John. We are picking up where we were last week. If you missed last week, you did not miss a section of text because we're going to be looking at the same section of text this morning, John chapter 1, the first five verses. There is a great deal for us to learn from not only John's gospel in general, but the the prologue of the first chapter, and especially these first few verses. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thus far the reading of God's holy Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that You would fix our eyes on Jesus. That even as we learn from Your Word, it would to be the end that we would worship our Savior. It would be to the end that we would tell the great testimony of our Savior to those who are around us that we would know that You, O Lord, are worthy. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Last week we started with this glorious gospel, according to John. We saw that it contains some of the deepest truths and most memorable sections of the Bible. John told us what his purpose was in writing. And if you'll recall, that occurs at the end of the book, in the 20th chapter, the 31st verse. His purpose was that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That is the purpose of this gospel. That is what our study of this gospel points us toward. That we may have life in the name of Jesus Christ. And so John begins with this marvelous prologue. It sets the stage for the rest of the book. It tells us who Jesus is. It tells us that Jesus is the one from before the beginning. He is the Word. And last week we saw who the Word is. He is very God. He's not like God. He's not a God. He is God Himself. And we also saw that God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We focused last week on who the Word is. And now this week we turn 
to what the Word does. We're going slowly through this prologue because it is crucially important. Unless we understand that Jesus Christ is God, unless we understand what Jesus Christ has done, we will remain in our sins. We can only have life in His name if we believe in the true Jesus. And so now we look, continuing at these first five verses, having seen that Jesus is the divine word, we now look this morning at the life-giving word and at the light-bringing word. Who the word is is shown by what he does. He gives life and brings light. Well, let's begin then to see Jesus' deity through His works by looking at the life-giving Word. We see this here in verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We touched on this last week. As John was showing us that the Word is uncreated. He told us, that the Word created all things as a way of showing us that the Word Himself could not have been created. Because after all, because the, world create, the Word created all things, He's not included in creation. He is the Creator. And so we reject the false teachings of the ancient Arians and the modern Jehovah's Witnesses and others who say that Jesus is not God. He is just a God. He's just like God. Now, we continue here at verse 3. The language of John is clear. It allows no exception. All things were made through Him. And John gives us both the positive and the negative. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Do you get the point? John's leaving you no way of excluding anything in creation. All things have been made by the Word. It's clear that John wants us to get the point. And so he repeats himself to block off any avenue of exception. And lest we miss the point, once again in verse 10, he repeats himself. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The Word is the Creator. Now, what do we mean when John says, all things were created by Him? Think about the expanse of creation. If we were in possession now of a telescope much more powerful than anything you or I could afford, we would look out into the vastness of space. And we would see that there is not only a galaxy that we live in, our planet is in a galaxy called the Milky Way, but that there are actually hundreds of millions of galaxies. And in each of those hundreds of millions of galaxies, there are billions of stars. Billions of in hundreds of millions. The numbers are beyond anything we can even comprehend. I don't know if the world is sufficient in space to list all of the zeros 
to number the number of stars. Then think about all of the plants, all of the animals here on land and on sea, the depths of the oceans, the height of the mountains, the forests, the jungles, the sand by the seashore, the rocks and the hills. Think of all that is found in our world. But then think of something else. Think not of the vastness, but think of the smallest of things. Think of every cell that makes up your body. And now we know, because we have powerful enough microscopes, that cells are not even the smallest unit of the body. There are parts of cells. And think about every part of a cell in your body, in everyone's body here, in every person of the billions of people here on earth. And Jesus Christ created them all. It's mind-boggling. But most importantly, do not forget that Jesus created you. He is your creator. That's what John is saying. This statement is very practical and it's very important. It points you to your relationship to Jesus. Jesus is your creator. You have to deal with Jesus because he is the one who made you. Now you say, but pastor, I thought I came from my father and my mother. Well, yes. And where did they come from? And you would say, well, my grandparents, all four of them. Okay. And go back and... Well, we're not going to spend the next half an hour doing that going back, but I want you to know and to see that when we go ultimately back, all of us trace our ancestry to one man, Adam. And who created Adam? We know from God's Word that it was God. That it was the Word. That the Word spoke and Adam came into existence. Now, what does it mean as we talk about creation, for John to say that all things were made through Jesus. I think the high-level headline of that is, is that Jesus is the agent of creation. The Word is the agent of creation. Now, before we speak about that, first, we must not forget that all the works of God are the works of the Trinity. We cannot separate out the triune God. Because you can't separate out God. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but God is one. And so there is no work of God where one of the persons acts and the others stand by disinterested or uninvolved. No. All three persons create. We saw this in Genesis chapter 1. God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke and the word brought things into existence. And of course, the Spirit of God hovered over the deep waters. But at the same time, the Bible teaches us that there is an emphasis on actions within the Trinity. For example... We rightly say with the scriptures that God saves. But in the work of salvation, it 
predominantly, preeminently belongs to the Father to elect and to send His Son. And it preeminently belongs to the Son to purchase redemption and to the Spirit to apply redemption to the saved. All three working as one, but with an emphasis within that work On each person's work. And that's what John is saying here about creation. He's saying that the agent of creation is the Word. All things came into being through His action. And this is not unique to John. He's not making this up as he goes along. We've already looked at Genesis chapter 1, but there are also other passages in the Scripture that teach us the same thing about creation. The psalmist in Psalm 33, verse 6, tells us, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of His mouth all their host. And then, of course, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For by Him, that is Christ, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Paul tells us everything you could imagine. He gives us a bit more detail than John does. John says all things, and Paul says, yes, all things include visible and invisible, and powers and principalities and rulers. And what Paul is referring to here is even the angels, fallen and unfallen, all created by the Word of God. Now stop and think about that for a moment. If we go back some time ago, we looked at the temptation of Matthew chapter 4, where Satan the devil says to his Creator, if you will fall down and worship me, I will give you this. Can you imagine the audacity of that? The creation attempting to give to the Creator. But that's what evil does. See, Jesus is the creator of all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And Paul makes it very personal for you and for me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, and from whom all things exist, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are, and through whom we exist. We exist through the work of the creation of the Word. Now, why spend so much time on this? Why repeat this? Why give several Bible references? There's a reason. Because this has become a radical idea today. To confess and to believe that there is a Creator, and even more, that we can know the Creator, is radical today in our society and our culture. You know, in the past, in the days of myths, even then they talked about creators. But not today. Today we are creator-less. And there is no designed creation. 
There is no designer for today's intellectuals. No. They will talk, the world will, about going back millions or even billions of years as if somehow that solves the problem of the beginning. But it doesn't. Because whether the beginning was five minutes ago or five billion years ago, you still have a beginning. If we go back to the Big Bang, we still need to ask, what started the bang? How did the stuff that banged, whatever it was or however unformed it was, get there? And just to simply say, well, it was a long time ago, doesn't explain it. And the result of that is that we are purposeless. Because there's no creator. Only random chance. Then that means that we are random also. We are a collection of random molecules pulled together by chance and time. There is no meaning to the world, no creation. Now some will try to dodge this philosophical truth. But if there is no purpose, if there is no design, if there is no creator, then all is vanity and foolishness. There is no meaning to anything. And you can see this, can't you, in the hopelessness of modern society. We hear constantly, it seems, just a story this week of a young woman in the prime of her athletic life, led her soccer team to the national championship from her college, and she took her own life. What causes someone to do that? I don't know, but I will tell you that that has become far more prevalent as our purposelessness is shouted throughout the world. But John says, no. There is a purpose. There is a creator. He is the word. He is Jesus. John also wants us to be clear that Jesus is more than a creator. Now that sounds odd at first, doesn't it? For what could be more than a creator? Well, the Word did not just set creation into motion. He is the one who gives creation meaning. We see this in verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's not just that the Word made all things. In Him was life. Now this word, life, is important to John. Do you remember when we said that the prologue... (coughs) is like an overture to the symphony of this book, striking certain notes that we will hear over and over again throughout the book. John is getting us ready for the themes of the book in this prologue. He's going to tell us about Jesus' deity. And he's also going to tell us about life. The word life occurs in John's Gospel more than 35 times, more than all the other three Gospels combined. And then the verb of this word, to live, occurs another 17 times. It's obviously very important to John and so should be important to us. It's not just life by him that is creation. It is life 
in Him. Jesus sustains all life. That means that all life, including yours, is sustained and continues because of Jesus. If the Word stopped holding the universe together, it would fall apart. Now, this is not just theology. This is science. You may or may not be familiar with the second law of thermodynamics, which says that all things begin to break down. All things become less and less stable. The world is grinding down. It's not as if creation somehow started and is building up. No, it is going down. And if you don't, think about this. I would encourage you to just think about how you get up in the morning. Almost every day that I get up, I hurt in a new place. I'm getting older and older. I can't do things I used to be able to do. My body's getting less and less. Think about your car. Year upon year, even without the salt on the roads, it begins to grind down and get older and older. Everywhere around us, we see the effects of this. It's before our very eyes. But you see, the only reason everything doesn't fall apart completely is because Jesus will not allow it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus not only created all things, <coughs> He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And Paul, in that same Colossians 1, in verse 17 says... But He, Jesus, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Do you ever think about that? That your very life is held together by Jesus. More than that, do you give Him praise for that? Because He is worthy of praise. The fact that this roof doesn't collapse on us, that the oxygen is still there for us to breathe, that our lives are going on and continuing, is all due to the goodness of our sustainer, Jesus, the Word of God. You see, the problem is, is that we so often, especially in our culture, and it can infect us in the church, think that our life is in our hands. People go on living as if Jesus didn't exist, or as if He wasn't important. They act as if they're in control, even when they're not. I can't think of a better example of that than the pandemic. People act as if God is not in control at all over any disease, over any problem in the world, that it's simply random, it simply happens by chance. And yet at the same time, they act as if they are completely in control. Well, if we just do this, and we just do that, and we just do the other thing, everything will be fine and no one will ever die. Until that doesn't work. And then we say, ah, well, we missed it. You have to do the other thing and this other, other thing, and then no one will ever die. And I will tell you, it doesn't matter what the steps are. It doesn't matter whether they are grounded in good results of science or not. There's no need to argue that. The one thing we need to know is that we are not in control. God is. We cannot add a single moment to our life. But that should also encourage you. Because 
God is in control. There's a wonderful quote that you would do well to remember. I tried to research who it is first attributed to, but there's a good half dozen or more theologians that it's attributed to. So you, I think, could just attribute it to your favorite theologian. Say, me. I am immortal until God's work for me is done. So in that line, no Christian should ever fear death. Now I realize part of the problem is you and I don't know, we don't have written on a piece of paper what the amount of work is that God has for us. So we don't know when we go in for that operation if that will be our last operation. We don't know when we're driving if we're going to be hit by that truck. We don't know if we will breathe our lasts. But what you should know is that it is in the hands of Jesus. And that you should never fear. We talk all the time in parlance about people dying untimely. Especially if it's a child or a young person. But I have to tell you, no one dies an untimely death. Everyone's death is determined by God himself. And so with that, we can have confidence and hope. We don't need to fear. We can live life to the fullest because our creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also our sustainer. But this life is more than physical life. John hints at that in verse he says the life was the light of men and this goes back to John's purpose verse in chapter 20 when John writes that purpose verse he says to those who already have physical life I'm writing to you that you may have life in his name so if you've already got physical life how could John tell you you need to hear this to get physical life it makes no sense and that's what we understand John to be talking not about physical life, but spiritual life. It's beyond the here and the now. And for you and for me, that is a good thing, because that tells us that this is not the best that we get. There is more. What is eternal life? Well, first of all, to state the obvious, it is eternal. It is not just long life. It's not million-year life. It's not billion-year life. It's eternal life. <coughs> because if it was life for a million years, they would call it million-year life. Not eternal life. And it is life that comes from Jesus. It is a life that is like His. It is a life that is abundant and satisfying. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that is why life, John tells us, is the light of men. The light from Jesus is what animates us. It's what gives us purpose. It's what gives us hope. It's more than just existence. You are meant not just to survive, but to live abundantly. If you are in survival mode here today, you need to hear this. Jesus created you. Jesus sustains you. And Jesus offers you life so that you will have great joy. You can only find that joy in Jesus. 
Only by submitting to Him and believing in Him will you find your purpose. Only in Jesus can you find peace. John and I are telling you now to believe and to have that joy. But we have to hasten on unless you want a part three to this text. We also see that Jesus is the light-bringing Word. John picks up what will be another main theme for him, light. This word light is used 25 times in John's Gospel, a full one-third of its use in the entirety of the New Testament. It is an important word for John because it also describes Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He is the life. And He is the light. Jesus himself makes this point in chapter 9. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, it's not just that Jesus brings light. No, we could mistakenly think that. The light does not exist outside of Jesus. He is the light. Jesus is the source of all life, and that life is the light of men. If we are to have light we must go to Jesus. Do you see that Jesus is the light? Do you see what the light does here? It shines. Light reveals. It makes clear. It allows us to see. You know, one of the most frustrating things about growing old is your vision. Now, I have been wearing glasses since I was in the second grade. My teachers found this out because we would have a lesson and I would walk right up to the chalkboard about an inch away to, in order to read what was on the chalkboard. And they said, you need glasses, young man. And so I wore glasses and then I wore contacts for some period of time and I was happy I could see. And then about 10 years ago, I discovered that even with my glasses and contacts, I couldn't see what was in front of me anymore couldn't read. Those of you that have glasses that are younger, it's coming for you. And so we go through this drill every year, my optometrist and I, where they give me a new prescription. It works for a while. And then about the time when I'm due for a new prescription, my wife has to listen to me say all the time, I can't see anything. Read this box. No, I can't see it. Look at this on your phone. No, I can't see it. I can't see anything. And so when I am in a restaurant and I have to see a menu, and the restaurant is trying to create a nice ambiance for my wife and I. I can't read the menu, and I don't want to order liver or something like that. So what do I do? I take out my phone, and I turn on the flashlight, and boom, the light comes out. It lights up the couple of tables around us. And then I can see, because the light has revealed. Now, you do that too, even if your vision is 20-20. You can't see in the dark, can you? You need the light to reveal so that you can see it makes life clear. But light doesn't just reveal. It also guides. It shows us the path that we are to go down. And don't we want that? Don't we need that? Don't we need light to guide us along our way? You know, one of the things that's changed about the world in my lifetime is it used to be when I was younger, 
and you had a new product, especially an electronic product, you got it out and you opened the manual so you could find out how it worked and what you could do. And somewhere along the line, Apple decided, we're not doing manuals ever again. We want you to play with it and find out how to work it that way because that'll be more fun. No, thank you. I want the manual. I want to know what I can do, what its capabilities are, so I don't do something wrong. That's what light does for us. It guides us through life. The light of God's Word is there for us to guide us. Jesus said, not only I am the light of the world, but He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, not to sound simplistic, but the answer to all of your problems is Jesus. Not that you can do without wisdom or patience or honesty, but you have to start with Jesus. Without Jesus, everything else is in vain. You need Jesus to shine the light of God in your life. And He has promised to do that. If you trust him. John is telling you that promise is true. Will you believe it? Well the rest of verse 5. Makes clear why we need the light. Of Jesus. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The light does not shine abstractly. Look. The light shines in the darkness. And darkness is another one of John's themes. He uses it eight times <coughs> and another six times in his first letter. This word is only used three other times in the rest of the New Testament. It's something that John wants us to see. He wants us to know that our condition apart from Jesus is darkness. When Jesus came into the world, he exposed Darkness. Darkness is not just different from light. It is opposed to it. It is the absence of light. Darkness has no property of its own, except for that it is not light. Now, when you go into a dark room, what do you do? Do you open up the window so the darkness can go out? Do you start to wave your arms to shoo out the darkness? No. The only way that you can dispel the darkness is to let the light in. And we see darkness all around us all the time. We see it on the world stage with war, with slavery, with injustice, with abuse. We see it around us with crime, with unfairness, with hatred, with greed, lying, and persecution. The world is full of darkness. The world is not as bad as it possibly could be. But it is a dark place. But if we are honest, we see darkness in us also. It's easy to see the sin around us and against us, but we are not guiltless. Life apart from God is darkness, not light. So those of us who do not know Jesus walk and live in darkness. We live with guilt. Think about driving down the street and you pass a police car on the side. What do you do? 
If you're anything like me, you slam on the brakes. Because you feel guilty. You assume you're speeding. You assume you're breaking the law. You assume that the policeman is going to come, pull you over, and throw the book at you. What about when parents call their children? When dad says, would you please come down here now? We need to talk. What child thinks, ooh, I'm getting a new present? No. You think, what of all the things that I've already done did they find out? And then you have this conversation in your head as you walk down. How do I not reveal what I've done so I limit it to just what they know? Right? When you get a letter from the IRS, do you assume it's them sending you an extra refund? No, you think, am I being audited? Have I done something wrong? You know, I know I was pretty aggressive with my taxes. This is what happens. But even those of us who believe in Jesus can spend time in the darkness. We can fail to read God's Word. We cannot be in prayer. We can be selfish. But John gives us the great truth and hope of the gospel in this little phrase. The darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light shining in the darkness. The darkness is hostile and it wants to snuff out the light, but it can't. The light is too powerful. You know, I learned this week, you learn things when you preach. I learned this week about eclipses. And I don't know if you've ever seen an eclipse, a total eclipse, when the moon comes completely in front of the sun and there's darkness. Did you know that if there is a 99% eclipse, you should not look at it? Because you will burn the retinas out of your eyes. Because 1% of the sun shining is enough to dispel darkness. That's how powerful the sun is. Now think about our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of His light is beyond anything we could imagine. The darkness cannot overcome Him. Now this word overcome is difficult to translate. One meaning of this word is to seize or to grasp, to take it by hand. But it can also apply to the mind as well. We talk about a student grasping the principles of geometry. That's how the King James translates this verse. The darkness does not comprehend it. And I think there's some truth to that. The darkness doesn't understand Jesus. It doesn't understand the light. It doesn't understand truth. But there's another meaning to this word as well. And I think John uses it intentionally in this double-edged way. It can also mean to overcome or to master, or to have authority over. That's what our translation uses. And if you look at a similar passage in John 12, verse 25, all translations translate it overcome or overtake before darkness overtakes you. So what that tells us is that no matter how dark the darkness is, the light still shines. It cannot be overcome. Now apply this to your life. No matter how deep or black your sin is, the light of Christ cannot be overcome. In fact, Jesus' light overcomes your darkness. Your hope is not in you blowing out your sin, 
but in Jesus shining the light of His grace in your life. What good news. Do you believe that? It is the hope of the gospel for you. Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness. Well, we have not gotten past even the first few verses of the glorious gospel of God. And we see it's already clear. Jesus has come. Jesus the Word. God Himself, the Creator of all things, including you and me. Jesus came to bring life, eternal life. Life without end. Life with purpose. Life with joy. Jesus came to bring light. Light to banish the darkness of sin and shame. Light to guide us on the path that the Lord has made for us. And nothing can stop Jesus. Not the sin and darkness of the world. Not the devil. Not even the darkness of your own heart. Will you look to Jesus now? He has come. He has come to save. Let's pray.